So, um, yeah, let's open up our Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. It's the book of Revelation. I hear a lot of people say Revelations, talking about that book, the last book of the Bible. It's not Revelations, it's Revelation. And the reason is the first sentence of that book says the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the entire book is not mostly about the horrible things that are going to come down from God's judgments. The whole book is not primarily about the Antichrist who's going to come and persecute the saints and bring his worldwide government and cause the earth to worship him. It's not primarily about inciting fear. It's not primarily about uh, maybe some of the common things that you've heard. It's primarily about the revelation of the beauty of Jesus Christ. The first sentence tells us what this book is primarily about, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're going to talk about some of the things that Jesus is going to do, and we're going to talk about um, Jesus' physical reign for a thousand years on the earth. It's called the age to come. Okay, so let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We say thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. And we ask you to send your spirit, send the spirit of revelation. Lord, would you strengthen me as I speak? Would you give understanding to every one of us in our minds and our hearts that we would uh, be able to agree with you in your plan and your desires for the things that are ahead of us? We ask that you would give us clarity. We ask that you would align us with your word, that even some of the things that maybe we've believed all of our lives, God, that you would you would open up your word and cause light to shine. I ask for light to shine this morning. Holy Spirit, come. Do what you love to do. Reveal the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of the man, and the beauty of his plan. I thank you that we get to partner with you, that we get to stand with you, that we get to say yes to you taking over the earth and removing darkness and sin forever. We love you, Jesus. We trust you. So come and let your word burn like a fire within us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're talking about the physical reign of Jesus on the earth when he returns. To bring some introduction, I want to talk about there's seven reasons why uh, I want to talk about this today. There's seven purposes for this session. And you don't have to get all these seven purposes, but um, I want to give a context to why this session is so important and why this reality of Jesus' is coming is so important. The first one is to incite our imagination and our vision for life beyond this age. There was a joy that was set before Jesus and we need to enter into that same hope. It was the day when he would receive all the nations as his inheritance. And that hasn't yet happened, right? 
And so we need to enter into that same hope for the day when he will have all the nations as his inheritance. And the reality is this age, this 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, whatever God graces us with on this earth is only an internship preparing us for eternity, preparing us for the next age, preparing us for the age to come. We've talked a lot about that God created us to be kings and priests. And that gives us hope because we're not just to be kings and priests in this age. We will actually be kings and priests for eternity, forever. So one, we need to have vision beyond life in this age. Two, to give greater understanding of the Bible, of Scripture as a whole. So much of Scripture is written with an understanding that there's a kingdom of God that is actually coming to the earth. If we do not see this reality, much of Scripture won't make sense to us. And when you begin to see Scripture through the lens of the age to come, through the coming kingdom, so much of the Bible begins to make sense and open up to us. Number three, to establish confidence in the fact that the ultimate victory of God's kingdom in the earth, in all spheres of life, is coming. Jesus will have ultimate victory over all things in all spheres of life. It says Colossians 1, he will have preeminence in all things. There's a real day where that's going to happen. And we need to have confidence in that ultimate victory. Number four, to understand the dynamic continuity of our present character and our present obedience and our present works to the age to come. So your choices now reverberate throughout eternity. Your choices now matter and your, your outreach to unbelievers matters. Your love to your family matters. You giving a cup of cold water to someone matters and it actually affects your future. It affects how you will spend the rest of eternity and in the age to come. So like I said, this is really just an internship preparing for the thousand year reign where you'll get your true ministry assignment for a thousand years. You have maybe a ministry assignment here. Maybe you're called to uh, be a full-time intercessory missionary. Maybe you're called to be in the marketplace and, and um, spreading the gospel in that sphere. Maybe you're called to be a doctor. Maybe you're called to be uh, whatever it is. You're still just in an internship waiting for your real assignment, your real calling that's going to happen in the age to come. So this is an amazing reality because how many of you have like prophetic promises over your life that haven't yet happened? I do. And I'm, I'm hoping, believing God that they will happen in this life. But what if they don't? What if your prophetic promises don't actually happen in this age and you go to be with the Lord? Are those prophetic promises not true? Did, did, they, did God miss it? Did you miss hearing God? I don't think that's true. Those promises are still real because your life doesn't end when you die. There's 1,000 years where we're going to rule and reign with Jesus and that you're going to have those promises. Still, God's going to be faithful to all of those promises. Amen? 
Okay, we want to understand there's a dynamic continuity, like it continues on. Our choices and our works matter for that day. Number five, we want to receive more revelation of the beauty of Jesus in context to his millennial glory. In context to that 1,000 years where he comes and reigns from Jerusalem. We want to know his beauty when he reigns in those days. Number six, to equip us to preach the full message of the kingdom of God without limiting it to the introductory message of forgiveness. Often when the message of salvation is preached, it's the four steps to receiving Christ or the Romans road where you are introduced to Jesus and you say yes for him for, for the first time. But that's just the introduction to the kingdom. That's not the full message of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the nations and then the end will come. It's not just the gospel of salvation that's going to be preached to all the nations. It's the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom that is coming is what Jesus wants us to be aware of. And then last, to motivate obedience in our hearts now as we experience some of the pleasure that God wants to give us in his end time plan. How many of you know God actually has pleasure about his plans that are coming, right? He's, he's pretty excited about it, about exalting his son and all the earth. He's pretty excited about getting rid of Satan forever. He's pretty excited about removing all darkness from the planet. I don't know about you, but that like sounds pretty good. Like we should be as excited as God is about his plans for the future. But the sad reality is that most of the church has spiritualized it and relegated it to something that has no effect and no bearing upon our lives. And so we don't study it and we don't think about it and we don't focus on it and meditate it on it, meditate on it enough so that it, it produces hope and faith and confidence and joy in us now. So, Revelation chapter 20, we're going to read verse 1 through 6. Okay, let's read it together. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless, bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him 
a thousand years. Now, there's so much going on in this passage, and you're probably like, I didn't get most of what he just read. (laughs) Anybody there? You're like, okay, that was a lot. I don't really understand that, but cool. Um, Six times in these six verses, the word a thousand years is used. The thousand years. Many scholars, I believe wrongly, have spiritualized that number to make it something that it really doesn't mean. In the book of Revelation, there aren't any times or dates or um, numbers that are spiritualized. Like seven lampstands means seven lampstands, right? (laughs) Uh, 42 months means 42 months. Three and a half years means three and a half years. So a thousand years means a thousand years, right? We went, it's the main and plain. What is the Bible saying? Oh, it's a thousand years. And he emphasizes it six times in six verses, a thousand years. So this is an important piece of information that we need to have. We need to understand a thousand years It's a literal 1,000-year period in which Jesus will rule the world in righteousness. So the the word millennium comes from the the Latin word uh, mille, which means a 1,000, right? So when we say the coming kingdom, we can talk about the millennial kingdom, the millennium. We can talk about um, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus. That's all talking about the same thing, okay? So... Let's start at verse 1, and let's break this down. So it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Now this angel is not Jesus. It's an angel. Other times in the book of Revelation, it always uh, differentiates between the Son of Man or an angel. Okay? And this is an angel. Just a normal, average, run-of-the-mill angel. Right? (laughs) Coming down from heaven. And it says he has two things in his his hands. He has two things. He has a key to the bottomless pit. And he has a great chain in his hand. And so you ask the question, wow, this angel coming down from heaven, why does he have a key to the bottomless pit? And why does he have a chain in his hand? First, I want to talk about uh, this bottomless pit. The bottomless pit is not hell. It's not the lake of fire. Okay? This is a different place. Um, it dis- it's described in different places in the scripture as a shaft within the earth. Okay? It's actually a place somewhere on the earth that is a shaft into the depths. It's like, I don't know if it's truly bottomless because I don't know if you know, how that works with the bottom of the earth or, or what, but it's really, really deep. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a bottomless pit. Okay. So, um, we get some insight in Isaiah 24. I love this passage because it's a parallel passage to revelation 20, Isaiah 24 verse 21. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones, meaning, uh, the demonic beings 
and on the earth, the kings of the earth. So both in the um, second heavens where the uh, demonic angels, um, demons, and Satan have authority and the kings that rule here on the earth will be punished. They will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in the prison. After many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. Okay, so this describes the, the demonic host and Satan himself gathered together, thrown into a pit and put in chains in prison. And then it says after many days, it in Isaiah 24, it doesn't say a thousand years, but in Revelation 20, we find out it's a thousand years that they're put in the pit and then they will be released for a time and then they'll be punished. Okay. And then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed because the glory of the Lord will cover the water, cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. So it says, the angel comes, has the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And then the angel does six things. Okay. First one, it says he laid hold of Satan. One angel by himself lays hold of Satan. I believe this maybe is, a, it should be seen in our minds as like a dramatic and possibly even violent episode. Like Satan doesn't go down without a fight, right? So this could be like somehow, I don't know if it's a wrestle or some kind of battle or something that happens where the angel lays hold of Satan. Satan is filled with rage at such a restrictive action taken against him. In Revelation 12, we find that he gets so full of rage that he makes war on all of the saints and all of the people of God. Okay, so the, the angel lays hold of Satan. And then it says it, he bound him. And he puts these supernatural chains on him. Not any normal chains can bind Satan, right? It has to be some kind of heavenly chains that lay hold of Satan. God's reason for chaining him in prison is so that he could not deceive the nations any longer. That's what it says. He should de deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. So Satan has been deceiving the nations since the Garden of Eden. And he hasn't stopped. He's still going around, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Peter tells us that. He's still, he's not bound right now, right? So we know we're not in the thousand years yet because Satan hasn't been bound, right? Okay, so there's some people who hold the position like we're already in the thousand years, but you just use deductive reasoning, okay? Has Satan been bound? Obviously not. So we're not in the thousand years yet. This is yet a future thing that's ahead of us. A future glory where Satan himself is bound. And I believe Satan hates this message. 
He hates the fact that he knows one day he will be bound in prison. And that's why this message hasn't, it's not necessarily a popular message. It hasn't gone far and wide throughout the body of Christ. But it is so valuable for us to understand and lay hold and know Jesus will be victorious over Satan. And he does it so easily. It's one angel that comes and binds Satan. Jesus doesn't even have to do it himself. You know, Jesus just goes, hey, hey, little angel, go like bind Satan really quick. You know, (laughs) this is awesome. This is a powerful reality. Okay. Um, So the angel lays hold of Satan, binds him, and then it says, casts him into the pit. The bottomless pit is the prison for fallen angels. And it's the place we find out in different places in Revelation where the Antichrist dwelt and then came out of the bottomless pit. So he's cast into a pit. And then it says he shut him up. Shut up, Satan. I love that. He shut him up. He kept him from any communication or any activity on the earth for a thousand years. He will not be able to deceive the nations any longer. And then the fifth thing that the angel does is he sets a seal on him. This means he can't break out of prison. He's sealed up. He can't get out. He's stuck there by God's power through this angel for a thousand years. And then the sixth thing that the angel does is releases him that he might deceive the nations Again, now you might ask, that makes no sense. Why would God decide to throw Satan into the pit for a thousand years and then just let him go again? Like, what's going on here? And I believe that I think there's a few different answers to this question, but one answer is that he's showing the earth that even 1,000 years in prison can't change satan he is not going to repent he's not going to become better he's released from that and it exposes the depth of the fallenness of satan that he will never be redeemed never and the fact that at the end of that 1,000 years, he'll be released and he'll deceive the nations again. And that will be the height of human sin. And God will display openly the height of human sin. And then he sends fire from heaven and destroys them all and sends them all into the lake of fire forever. That's not just a prison. The lake of fire is the place of eternal, uh, eternal flames. All right, so this angel does these six things. Satan is put in prison for a thousand years. He can no longer torment or persecute anyone. That's good news. There should be a shout in our hearts when we read this passage. Yes, he will be bound for a thousand years. And Jesus will reign on the earth. So, we see Jesus... Gave the disciples in Matthew 28, 18, and 19. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. He gives them the great commission, right? 
Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, do you think that promise and that commission from Jesus will be fully manifested and fulfilled on the earth? Yeah, in the thousand years. Yes, it's going to happen. Right? It's not just, hey, disciples, do this little activity just to keep you busy because it really won't fully take place anyways. No, he's saying the Great Commission will be fulfilled, but the reality is it's going to take Jesus' intervention into human history at his second coming in order to fulfill it fully. Okay? So Jesus is actually the one who's going to complete the Great Commission. Human beings will not do it ourselves. So there's three stages where God is coming to take dominion over this planet. Three stages. Stage one is when he was raised from the dead. This was like the the coronation of his kingdom. This was the the beginning of his worldwide takeover was when he was raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the father, poured out the Holy Spirit, gives the great commission. He says, stage one, you will uh, spread the good news of Jesus and I'm gonna rule in people's hearts mostly in this age. It started at the cross and it continues until the second coming. So that's stage one, okay? We're spreading the good news, and Jesus reigns in the hearts of people. Then stage two is the 1,000 years. Jesus will return to the earth, and he'll set up a substantial manifest manifestation of his political rule over all the nations, and it's going to occur in that day. So Jesus will return, and he'll begin to restore the earth to some of the Garden of Eden conditions that it was like in the beginning. Then stage three, at the end of the millennium, the earth will be cleansed with fire, and then Jesus, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Jesus will hand over the dominion to the Father, and the Father will then reign on the earth. Revelation 21 says that the tabernacle, behold, the tabernacle of God, the Father, is with men. The new Jerusalem will descend and Jesus will reign with his Father on the earth. And that's stage three. The fullness in all areas of society, both the, through the hearts of men in through the political realm and through social, environmental, in all areas. Jesus will reign and be perfectly glorified. So we're going to focus in on this 1,000-year reign. What does this look like? What will it be like on that day? Because a lot of people talk about the end of the world, right? But the reality is, biblically, there is no end of the world. There's the end of an age, but there is not an end of the world. This world actually will not end. It will be renewed and restored, but it will not end. It will be 
cleansed by fire after the 1,000 years are done, but it's not going to end. It's the end of an age. It's the end of a, an era. It's the end of this season of time. But then when Jesus returns, it's starting a new age, right? So to give you a picture kind of biblically in it from a Jewish worldview of the world from the beginning of how they viewed it was they believe that uh, in Psalm 90, it says that a thousand years with God is as a day, right? And so they believe that creation was a prophetic picture of God's plan for the earth, and human beings. So the seven days of creation represented the seven days of God's plan throughout human history, right? So they believed that after 6,000 years, there would be a Sabbath rest for the earth. So human history in is kind of in a, in a 1,000 year chunk. So from Adam and Eve to the cross was 4,000 years. And from the cross to now is about 2,000 years, right? And so that's 6,000 years. And in a Jewish worldview, we are so close to the return of the Messiah, where he will come and establish the physical kingdom, restoring what was lost in the garden. Yeah? You guys with me? So we're in this 6,000th year, nearing the end of this 6,000th year, I believe. And there's, you know, different people do their timing differently. And that's not the point. We're not supposed to try to find the exact timing, right? But we know we're in the season. It's coming closer. We're nearing the end of that 6,000th year. And this Sabbath rest where Satan is bound and Jesus reigns on the earth is going to come to the earth and bring his rest and bring his peace. Amen? This kingdom of God will be openly manifest for a thousand years, affecting every sphere of life. It will be a political. Jesus will be king. It will be social, it will be agricultural, economic, spiritual, educational, in law enforcement, in family, in media, in arts, in technology, athletics, environment, in social institutions, and on and on and on. Every single part of life, Jesus will bring his influence, his peace, and his kingdom in that area. The result will be 1,000 years of unprecedented blessing. For the whole earth as Jesus establishes righteousness and prosperity. He's going to restore many of the things that we saw in the Garden of Eden to their original reality, to their original intent. So it's really important that we understand this period of blessing begins at the second coming of Jesus. Okay, it begins at the second coming of Jesus. He will personally govern a worldwide kingdom from Jerusalem. And he will do this in partnership with the resurrected saints. Those who've been raised from the dead, resurrected bodies, and he's going to partner. We're going to partner with him. And it's from Jerusalem. Jerusalem in Jewish tradition is called the, the center of the earth. 
And I believe the Bible is actually a um, Jerusalem-centered book. Most of the time in Western Christianity, we completely ignore that idea um, because we have this this uh, deception that's crept into the church about how Israel is no longer on God's agenda, that Israel is no longer in God's heart, that they failed, and so the promises to them are no more, and... Um, they, the exact name is failing me right now. Does anyone remember the exact name of that theology? What? Replacement. Yes. That's what I'm looking for, where the church has replaced Israel. And what's that? Yeah, it's good that I forgot. It's not even real. <laughs> um, so, but that that deception has so crept into the church that we've spiritualized all the promises that are actually for Israel and we've placed them on the church and we've we've not seen that God's original intent for the Jewish people was to be his um his his governing people a light for the nations they have a a uh responsibility they actually have a position of authority that God gave them but over time they actually said no we don't want to worship you we don't want to reign with you we don't want to rule with you and so God then goes well then I'll send salvation to the nations to the Gentiles to provoke you to jealousy so that you would then take your place once again Okay, we're, that's why we are grafted in to Israel. We're grafted in. We don't replace them. We're grafted into them. Okay, so, so my point in all that saying was this book is a Jerusalem-centric book, an Israel-centric book, not a Western-centric book, right? This book revolves around that city and its reality um, and it's it's uh, the passion of God for that city he actually calls it the throne of the Lord it's the city of the great king it's his city okay and he loves that city and he chose that city I don't know why but that's the place where he chose he's gonna rule from that city forever Jeremiah three seventeen says Jerusalem call, shall be called the throne of the Lord and all the nations shall be gathered to it to the name of the Lord to Jerusalem so the revelation of the thousand year reign of Jesus is not just in one isolated place in Revelation chapter 20 it's actually one of the major themes of all of scripture we find it in all of that it, well, I forget, I didn't put this verse in my notes, but there's a verse that actually talks about all of the, the prophets talk about the millennial kingdom and talk about the reign of the Messiah on the earth. We see that in Matthew 6, verse 10, Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Now we, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, Hebrews 6 verse 5 says this, those who have tasted 
the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. I like to say foretastes of the powers of the age to come. So any time that we see a manifestation of the kingdom of God on this earth, we see power, we see healing, we see salvation, we see uh, whatever it is that God is doing, it's all just a foretaste of the powers of the age to come. We've, we're living now in an inaugurated kingdom, but it's, it's here, but it's not yet. It's now, but it's not yet. And we have to be clear about this reality that in this age, before Jesus returns, we will not see the fullness of his kingdom come. We won't see it because sin will still exist. Death will still, still exist. Satan is not bound. And so because of that, we need Jesus to intervene, send that angel to bind Satan, and then he can come to the earth and establish his rule from Jerusalem. Amen? And I love this, 2 Corinthians 5, 5. And it says this in many different places in the New Testament. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. He's given us the Spirit as a down payment. He's given us the Spirit as a promise. Right? It's the promise of the Father. It's just a foretaste of what's coming. The Holy Spirit that lives in your spirit right now is only a taste of what's coming. How many of you are thankful for the Holy Spirit that lives within you, with which you can commune with the Father and with Jesus? That's just a foretaste of what's coming. It's getting better there's coming an age where it's going to be so glorious now i want you to turn to daniel chapter 7 daniel chapter 7 verse 13 daniel actually saw the heavenly coronation of jesus as the eternal king over the dominions of the earth in every sphere of society he saw that day when it's, I believe it's, this, it's this, uh, the same day as Revelation chapter 5 when the son approaches the father and takes the scroll out of his hand. It's the day when Jesus receives the authority. So Daniel chapter 7, say amen if you're there. Okay, Daniel chapter 7. I was watching in the night visions, verse 13. And behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. 14. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. I just want to read that again. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. 
Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one that will shall not be destroyed. So we see Jesus. This is the second coming of Jesus. He, he will appear on the clouds, and he will approach the Ancient of Days, which is the Father, and the Father will give him his inheritance. He will give him the nations and dominion and glory and the kingdom, a physical kingdom, the throne of David established in Jerusalem that he might reign over all the earth. Then Jesus actually quotes Daniel 7, verse 27, which we just read, in Matthew 25, verse 31. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, Then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another. So Jesus actually is quoting Daniel chapter seven, speaking of himself. I'm the man. Hi, bud. I'm the man that's going to come in the sky and I'm going to rule from Jerusalem. I'm the son of man that Daniel saw. That was me that he saw. So as we're talking about heaven coming to earth, there is hey bud, here. Let me just stand by you. Um, there is an interpretive key that we need to understand. Um, and it's this Ephesians one, nine and ten. Write down Ephesians one, nine and ten. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 says, God, having made known to us the mystery of his will, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both things which are in heaven and things which are on earth in him. Okay, so the central centerpiece of God's eternal purpose is that Jesus would come back and establish his kingdom over all the earth as he joins the heavenly and earthly realities together, right? We see this in um, the new Jerusalem, the holy city coming down to the earth, right? And in that way, he's joining heaven and earth together. God's purpose has always been for his people to live together with him in this way forever, This is the interpretive key to understanding many end-time passages. Without this foundational revelation, we get confused. We think something is a spiritualized thing versus actually being a reality. You know, many times um, people read the prophecies about the age to come in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and in different places in the scriptures, and they just think it's a spiritual uh, m- spiritual meaning. So like when Isaiah says, the wolf will lay down with the lamb, or the lion will lay down with the lamb. They just say, oh, that's just a metaphor describing the peace that will be on the earth. And in one way that's true, but I believe the lion will really lay down with the lamb. It's literal. Right? It's not just a figurative form uh, that we're supposed to try to spiritualize so we get the meaning of behind it. Right? It says that the lion will eat straw like the ox. Okay, that's really going to happen. 
the lion's going to eat straw and not eat meat anymore. Okay, it says that the cobra, the, the, the young infant, is going to play by the cobra's hole, by a snake's hole. That's not just a figurative thing to make a point. I, it's really going to happen. There's going to be peace reigning between all of the animal kingdom and human beings. It's going to restore those qualities in the Garden of Eden where Adam named the animals and they were not at enmity. They weren't, they weren't angry at him. They weren't afraid of him like we see animals are now, right? So we have to have this interpretive key. God's desire is to always bring heaven and earth together. God created the universe in two divisions. Heaven, God cre- in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning, there was the place where God's manifest power and glory was openly displayed. And then there's the earth where human process, emotions, and physical sensations reach their fullest expression. Heaven is the place believers have gone for the last 2,000 years, from the cross to the second coming, as a temporary holding pattern. Temporary holding pattern before receiving the resurrected body. So all of the people that you know and all of the people that have died before us do not have a resurrected body yet. They have their spiritual body in heaven right now. And they are the great cloud of witnesses that's looking on, encouraging us, interceding for us. But they don't have the resurrected body right now. Not yet. Right? In heaven, those saints don't necessarily need their resurrected body because it's a spiritual environment. Right? But they're going to need the resurrected body Why? Because they're going to live on the earth forever, right? Our eternal destiny is not to be in heaven forever. It's to be on the earth. God created us for the earth from the dust of the earth so that we could live on the earth forever, not just escape the physical reality to go hang out in the spiritual reality forever. We were made that heaven and earth would be together on the earth and God dwelling with man forever, walking with man in the cool of the day in the garden. Only as the two places come together can we express the fullness of God's personality and his purposes and the fullness of God. Only as the two places come together can we experience the fullness of what God is talking about and what God's plan is for us? Now, I just want to mention, I don't want to go into depth on this point, but there's an ancient Greek philosophy called Platonism by, uh, started by Plato, um, who actually took some of the ideas from the Bible and made them, uh, he, he, he twisted them. And he actually called this place that the Bible calls heaven, the intelligible realm, meaning that it doesn't have material substance. It doesn't have any sort of tangible uh, reality. It's, it's just smoke. It's just emptiness. It's not real, 
right? It's just intangible realm. And he viewed that as ultimately good because he saw that's where God is. So he said, oh, that's ultimately good. And everything physical is bad. Everything that's physical is like we try to escape the physical things, the flesh. We try to escape that. This philosophy actually continues in the church today. It leads some to think wrongly about heaven on earth. And here's the sad fact. If we don't think rightly about heaven and rightly about heaven on earth, we won't think about heaven at all. Because it won't be relevant to us, right? But the Bible describes heaven and earth coming together as very real, very tangible, very experiential, not just clouds and immaterial nothingness, right? So why is Jesus coming back to establish his kingdom on the earth? What's the big point? Like, okay, we get it. You, you want to come back for your bride, but why not just catch us away and we live in heaven with you forever? Why do you want to come like you're coming? Jesus's primary mandate is to prepare the earth for the Father's coming. Because the Father wants to come to the earth like he was in the beginning. And so Jesus is coming to bring the nations to mature righteousness in that 1,000 years. And it's going to take that 1,000 years for all of the things to happen for the Father to be ready. Now, when Jesus returns, it's not just going to be like, bam, Garden of Eden again. He's actually not going to suspend the human natural processes of life. It's going to be, we're going to be walking through time just like we're walking through time now. Jesus will come, set up his throne, and slowly he will put leaders in place. He will um, begin to restore all the different areas of the earth and society. And it, over a thousand years, it will begin to prepare the earth for the Father to come. After Jesus' 1,000-year reign, the earth will be perfect. And it's actually called the new earth. He will create the new heavens and the new earth. Now, when we think of the word new, we are not thinking necessarily of a completely other than place, right? This word new speaks like, okay, so let, let's think about it in the, the um, when you're born again, you become a new creation. But did God destroy you and then create something else? No. So, you are still you, right? But you're a new creation. You've been born again by the Spirit of God. So in the same way, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth is the restored creation to God's original design and original intent. So it's still going to be the same earth. We're going to walk on this ground. I believe there's still going to be some of the cities and some of the the infrastructures and some of the things that we know and love, maybe there will be an Amsterdam in the, in the millennium and even in the new earth. 
you know, n yeah, New Amsterdam. <laughs> there will be continuity between this age, right? We'll, maybe we'll recognize, uh, I mean, uh, obviously the judgments of God are going to mess up a lot of the geography and a lot of there's earthquakes and wars and famines and all kinds of different things that are going to take place when the judgments of God are on the earth. And so it's going to look a little bit, a lot different. First Corinthians fifteen twenty one. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when, when Jesus delivers the kingdom to the Father. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For Jesus must reign until the Father has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That's 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 21. So we see if you're in Adam, meaning you haven't been born again, you die. But if in your, you're in Christ... You will be made alive. So I like, maybe some of you have heard this, this saying, born once, you die twice. Born twice, you die once. Right? If you're only born in the natural and you don't get born again, you die twice. Meaning, you die in the natural and there's something called the second death which is when unbelievers will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. And then, but if you're born twice, you're born in the natural from your mother's womb, and then you say yes to Jesus, you only die once when you die and go to be with him. Okay? That's important for us to understand. This message about preparing the earth for the second coming of Jesus is about preparing God's people and the nations so he might fully establish his kingdom here on the earth. Jesus is raising up right now his millennial leadership team. So you have an assignment here on the earth, and that assignment is just preparing you for your real job on the millennial leadership team when you will reign on the earth with Jesus. This is what David saw. King David, that allowed him to live like he lived. He actually saw the day. He, he prophetically, God revealed to him that there's coming a day where the throne of David will be established over all the nations. It's, a, it's a first, first or second Samuel 7. It's the covenant that God made with David that on David's throne physical throne, there would be a king who lives there forever, who reigns there forever. And David saw this. Just like the Jewish people, David was expecting an earthly kingdom where everything would be different. Everything would be changed. Isaiah 9 verse 7 says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So this is speaking specifically of the millennial kingdom that his, he's going to come, establish his throne in Jerusalem, and then his kingdom will increase incre incrementally over time. 
the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It will just continue and continue and continue. And then it says, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So at when Jesus returns, sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem, he will never be dethroned. There will never be a time, and even after the thousand years is up, Satan will erupt from that pit and will deceive the nations one last time to try to dethrone Jesus from that place of the seat of his power and his glory in Jerusalem, and he will fail miserably because God will then send fire from heaven, vanquish all of the enemies, and then at that time, the Father will destroy death forever. There will be no more death, no more crying, no more pain. And we'll live with the Lord forever. Now, when Jesus appears in the sky, there's going to be three different types of people on the earth. Okay? Depending on who their allegiance is to. The first one is the redeemed. The redeemed, right? This is talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul tells us. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. What's that going to sound like? With the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So here's what Paul is saying. He goes, you who are mourning about your relatives that have died and gone to be with the Lord, don't worry. Because at the resurrection, they're going to meet Jesus in the sky as he's descending. And then, if you're still alive on that day, when Jesus returns, you'll be caught up with him in the sky as well to descend back down to set up the throne of glory in Jerusalem. And Jesus, it says in Zechariah that he will set foot on the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives will split in two to make way for all of those Jewish people who are coming back from the nations. And they'll go through that gate in Jerusalem to be with the Lord. So Paul is talking about this reality of this catching up where we'll all be caught up in the sky. Every, every believer who has died from the time of Jesus until the second coming will meet Jesus in the clouds on the day he returns. When there's that shout of Jesus, the voice of an archangel, and a trumpet. When that trumpet sounds. And then everyone who's still alive who believes in Jesus will be caught up in the air with him. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's the first group of people on the earth when Jesus returns is the redeemed. The second group is called the reprobate. Reprobate. That's kind of a fancy word, which basically means they're the ones that worship the Antichrist. They're the ones that cannot 
they've decided in their hearts they're not going to repent. They hate Jesus. They're going to follow this Antichrist, this false Messiah, and their allegiance is to him. They worship the beast. They worship this man. So it says, Revelation 14, the third angel followed saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. So basically, those ones will be judged and punished. Those ones who refuse to repent do not accept the mercy and kindness and grace of God in Christ and bow down and kiss the Son of God will not be saved. And so on the earth, there will be those that are following the Antichrist and worshiping him, taking the mark of the beast. Now, just going to throw this in as a side note. Many times people have asked the question, well, how do I know I won't be one of those ones who, who, who um, takes the mark of the beast and I become one of those unrepentant ones and I become the, that reprobate that, that can't be saved and can't be redeemed? How do I know I won't be one of those people? Well, just decide now, you're not going to take the mark of the beast. Just decide, right? I'm going to worship Jesus. I'm not going to bow down and worship the Antichrist. You're safe, right? Stay faithful to Jesus. That's why Jesus, over and over and over, when he was here on the earth, he says to his disciples, those who stay faithful to the end will be saved, Those who do not give in to the deception and the pleas and the the sin of worshiping the Antichrist will be saved. Okay? Jesus tells us that. Then, okay, so we have the redeemed, we have the reprobate, and we have ones called the resistors. These are the ones that kind of like, I'm not going to follow that Antichrist guy, but I don't believe in Jesus either. Right. And so they I I think there's the picture like in World War Two where there was the French resistance against Hitler and they didn't necessarily love Jesus. Maybe some of them did, but they hated Hitler because they saw the injustice and the evil that was within him. So that's a picture of the the type of people that will be on the earth when Jesus returns all throughout the prophets in the scripture. Uh. The scripture refers to those who are left, those who are left. That's this category of those who don't necessarily believe in Jesus, but they're not taking the mark of the beast, and they're those who are left, right? Zechariah 14, um, verse 16 says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, so it says everyone who is left, shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So these are the ones, if they say yes to Jesus at when he returns, they have the possibility of being saved. And these are the ones that will then populate the new earth. uh, Sorry, the, the millennial earth. During the time of the millennium, they will populate the millennial earth. Um, so I want to turn to Zechariah verse 14, chapter 14 starting in verse 9. So you can turn there in your Bibles if you want. Zechariah 14, verse 9. 
Okay, it says this, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. Amen. It shall be, in that day it shall be, the Lord is one and his name one. All the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. Verse 11. The people shall dwell in it, and no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague which, with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Okay, little graphic here. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah will also fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel, in great abundance. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and the donkey, and on the cattle that will be in those camps. So shall this plague be. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king of the Lord of hosts and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is describing really that final battle that takes place where all the nations gather against Jerusalem, make war against that city, and in that day, Jesus will come. He'll terrify them. His voice will destroy them, and they'll literally melt in their, as they stand on their feet. That's what Zechariah tells us. So, how many of you, this is shifting your perspective about the future? This is like, wow, this is, these are some new ideas. I've never seen these in the Bible, but, oh, here they are, right in the Bible. So it's so important for us to get the right perspective that when Jesus comes back, it's not going to be like, like I said, instantly everything's transformed. It's going to be all the natural processes of life will be significantly enhanced by the spiritual dimension, by the resurrected bodies that we'll receive, by the fact that sin will be held at bay because Satan won't be deceiving the nations anymore. Often in the Western Gentile context, we emphasize Jesus' deity reigning in um, in heaven, in the supernatural conditions of heaven, right? But the Jewish mindset, they believed that God and the Messiah would reign on the earth in a physical kingdom, right? That's what the Jews in Jesus' day, they asked Jesus, when, is, when are you going to establish your kingdom? When are you going to come overthrow the Romans? When are you going to come sit as king in the temple? And obviously, Jesus had a different idea of the timing when that would take place. But that doesn't mean it's not going to take place. There's been a divine delay, but he's coming. And he's going to establish his kingdom. So I mentioned Isaiah 11. The wolf will lay down with the lamb, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord 
as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 11. So we see the restoration of all the facets of creation. Animals and plants, all the earth will be restored. Now, this is where it gets good. If you're not already like, wow, that's, that's amazing. Okay, Daniel 7 again. You can turn back there. Daniel 7. So we saw Jesus approaches the Ancient of Days, and he's given the kingdom to reign and rule. In verse 21, it says, Daniel says, I was watching, and the same horn, or the Antichrist, was making war against the saints, and he was prevailing against them. Until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Then the kingdom and dominion, this is verse 27, then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the most high. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So it says that the Jesus receives the kingdom and then he gives the kingdom to his saints that we would be the kings and priests with him. In Revelation 5.10, it says that we have been made kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And it says this even in the um, Revelation 20. It says, um, The blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So Jesus will actually give leadership positions to you and I and to the saints to rule over cities, to rule over nations, to rule over geographic areas, to rule over angels. Paul says, do you not know that you will rule over angels? First Corinthians six, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Matthew 19, Jesus says to his disciples in the regeneration or the time in which the millennium takes place when the when God begins to regenerate the earth and create it as it was in the in the Garden of Eden. When the son of man sits on his throne of glory, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Luke 22, he says it again. I bestow on you a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then in Luke 19, Jesus is telling the parable of the faithful and wise servant. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, in very little, have authority over 10 cities. So Jesus will look at our faithfulness in our life and our responses to him, how we have said yes in all of our choices day by day in this life, and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Have authority over 10 cities. Wow. That dignifies your life in a way that's way beyond just just the... Uh, not thinking about how valuable your choices are now. It dignifies your life that 
What if you woke up every morning and said, I'm going to reign with Jesus one day? How would that affect how you lived your life, how you parented your kids, how you interacted with your family, how you made choices with your finances, how you gave to the kingdom, how you served, how you, you, you gave of yourself, how you witnessed? Jesus is going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Have authority over 10 cities. I have quite a bit more, but basically one of the big takeaway points from this message of understanding this reality, and I'll get to your question in a minute, is we must have a vision of hearing Jesus say to us, well done. We must have a vision that at the end of our life, when I see that man face to face, he will look at me and say, well done good and faithful servant. We must set our heart to walk in excellence in our relationship with Jesus and people. So he says, well done, good and faithful servant. So good means that we must set our hearts to do good. We overcome evil by doing good. And then he says, faithful We have to set our heart to be faithful to Jesus through every season of life. It doesn't matter what season of life you are in or you have been in or you will go through. You must set your heart to be faithful, to say, Jesus, I will say yes to you and what you're asking of me in every single season, whether it's a trial, a tribulation, or a blessing. I'm going to say yes to you. And actually, Sometimes saying yes to Jesus in the midst of the blessing is harder than saying yes to Jesus in the tribulation because you have nowhere else to go in the midst of the pain but to him. But in the blessing, it's easy to forget God. We want to be called a servant by Jesus. This is the ultimate affirmation of Christ-likeness and greatness is to be called his servant. Jesus said, At the end of the day, you just want to be called good and faithful servant. You want to say, I've just done what you asked me to do. You want to be called a good and faithful servant by Jesus. Cultivating this grace for a servant spirit is the only way to sustain faithfulness throughout the decades. We can only persevere consistently in small things Because we have a life paradigm of being a servant that seeks to be faithful to do good for Jesus with rewards at a different time. The point of understanding the millennium or one of the reasons we need to understand the millennium is that we don't seek our reward in this life. We seek our reward on that day when we see him and will receive crowns. Therefore, we can just lay down our lives. We can just preach the gospel and not be afraid for our life because I know I'm going to be raised from the dead anyway. You can't kill me. You can't take away the things that most matter to me. That's why the apostles and the disciples and the people, the, the 3,000 that got saved in, the, in Acts chapter 2, they willingly sold their land and property and gave it all away and, and just lived so generously. It was so radical. They were living for another age. 
They were living for another kingdom. They weren't living for this kingdom. That's how they could be a witness for Jesus and say, throw me in prison, persecute my body, whip me, do all the things that you want to do. But I'm going to stay faithful to Jesus because I know my reward is in that place. This message was not peripheral or secondary to the disciples after Jesus's resurrection. This was what they were living for. This is what they were expecting. They expected that Jesus would come back in their generation. They expected they would see him in the clouds caught up into the sky. When the angel said, why are you looking up like into the sky as if he's just going to come right back down? He will come back in the same way that you saw him go up. But they didn't tell him what time that would be. So it's been 2,000 years, and we want to stay faithful to Jesus because our reward is not in this life. It's in the age to come. We will receive the rewards and the things that are ahead of us. Amen? I mean, I'm barely touching the surface of this subject. Um, I encourage you to go to MikeBickle.org. He has an entire um, series of teachings on this subject of the, the coming kingdom, when Jesus will come and set up his kingdom. So, question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, I think you're referring to Revelation 20, right? Yeah. Revelation 20, yeah. So it says in Revelation 20, verse uh, 4, um, the second part of verse 4, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness, the martyrs, um, for the word of God, didn't worship the beast, didn't receive the mark on their forehead, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And then this is where it gets a little bit confusing, but other passages of scripture help us understand it better. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Okay, that rest of the dead speaks of the unbelievers. Those who have died without Christ will not be resurrected when Jesus returns. It's after the 1,000 years, and we see in Revelation, um, I think it's actually later in Revelation 20, where it talks about the great white throne and the unbelievers, everyone whose name was written in the book of life, who was not written in the book of life, were uh, sent to, to hell. Right. And so um, the first resurrection is what we read in First Thessalonians four, where Paul says that all dead in Christ will rise first and those who are alive will rise with them. That's the first resurrection. Right. The second resurrection, although it doesn't exactly say that terminology, the second resurrection is the unbelievers that get raised at the end of the millennium. Right. Because it's not time for them to be judged yet. The time for them to be judged is when um, that great white throne is revealed and 
the purity of God's judgment is released for all of those who have not said yes to Jesus. So, um, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Now, it's, they say that, he says that specifically to give us courage that even though we've, so the, the first resurrection will happen and the second death is the judgment of unbelievers. So it's saying, if you're a believer in Jesus, you stay faithful to him, you will be resurrected, and that second death won't have any power over you. You'll be delivered from that second death, right? And so everyone who's raised at the first resurrection will reign with Jesus for a thousand years, including the martyrs, including the ones that stayed faithful to Jesus no matter when they died, right? So is that making more sense? So there's the first resurrection, the martyrs are raised, everyone who's dead in Christ will be raised, and those who are alive on the earth, the redeemed, will meet the Lord in the air. And then, and that's when they receive their resurrected bodies in the air. In the twinkling of an eye, they'll receive their resurrected bodies. Boom! Resurrected body. And then they'll come back down to be given their... Um, responsibilities and their job descriptions and their to reign over different cities and different things. Um, and then a thousand years will happen. Jesus will restore the earth. And then the second resurrection or the second death will take place where unbelievers will then be judged. Yeah? Okay. One other question. Yes, Judy, or someone else. Yes, well... Uh, let me ask you this. Has, has Jesus returned to set up his kingdom on the earth yet? No. Okay, so that settles that. <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. It's still future. And um, I don't know the full answer to all of those questions, um, but I do know this, that uh, as you study it more, you get more understanding of what God is saying. And the, the, the key is not to jump to conclusions too quickly as you're studying. Because one verse describing one reality can't define all the rest of the scripture that has more information than just that one verse. So when they were saying, because I, I think I know the passage you're, you're talking about when Jesus says... Um, this generation will not pass away until you see me coming, right? And the, so what it's, what it's really saying is when it says this generation is, he's not talking about this generation now. He's talking about the generation in which Jesus, which the events of which he was describing in the end of the age, those events and the people who experience all those events won't pass away until Jesus and they will see him come. Does that make sense? Sort of. I mean, it's a huge, uh, a huge topic that we can unpack more and more. 